This morning when I woke up, I wrote two introductions for Bjorn's events today. One for lunch now, and one for our evening event. Uh, but having spoken to a few of you beforehand, I thought, well, I'm just going to give the one speech, which is the one I was going to give tonight, because I think it really puts Bjorn in the right context uh, before we hear what he has to say. Uh, a few years ago, in 2015, uh, Bjorn was asked to run a think tank in Perth that was committed to development economics. And more than $4 billion of federal tax dollars was to go to the University of Western Australia, which had announced it would establish Bjorn's planned Australia Consensus Centre in its business school. The centre's mission was to produce cost-benefit analysis for public policies. Now Bjorn, it should be stressed, has never been a climate denier. He firmly believes in the climate science and recognises humans' impact on our environment, and he has even supported a carbon price. Indeed, Bjorn is a highly qualified original thinker with a flair for evidence-based public policy research, who's been published in several peer-reviewed journals on economics, development and environmental matters. He and his staff research solutions to the world's biggest problems by cost-benefit analysis. What is so controversial about that? He believes that governments would be better spending resources on tackling diseases such as AIDS and malaria, or problems such as malnutrition or pollution, rather than very expensive and quite potentially highly dubiously effective climate mitigation strategies. And yet, there was an academic and media result back in 2015. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, with its wonderful capacity for understatement, published a one-sided news story with the headline, Academics liken Longborg appointment to putting Brian Burke in charge of the economy. Brian, Brian Burke, of course, was the disgraced former WA Premier. A Green Senator, Larissa Waters, with whom I've debated several times on television, she said, quote, Lomborg is just a discredited statistician peddling lies. The head of the National Tertiary Education Union called on the then Federal Education Minister, Christopher Pine, to resign over the matter. Uh, the environmentalist, uh, Tim Flannery, told uh, the ABC's Tony Jones that Bjorn Lomborg's message was of, quote, deep concern. Well, as a result of the outrage, the Vice-Chancellor of UWA suddenly reversed course and cancelled the contract and handed the money back to the Commonwealth. I think I can speak for all of you here today to say that whatever your views are of Bjorn, this episode, to put it mildly and politely, represented a betrayal of tradition of free thought. So what the universities have walked away, CIS has stepped in. An important debate about our way of life, particularly for developing nations. And so we are here today for lunch. Bjorn Lomborg is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Centre. Um, I had the great privilege of getting to know Bjorn in the 2000s when as the opinion page editor of the Australian for the best part of a decade, I'd publish him regularly 
I'm glad that relationship still continues. Uh, he's been named by Time magazine as one of the top 100 most influential people in the world. And among other things, he's been the author of some influential and best-selling books, most notably Cool It and The Skeptical Environmentalist. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bjorn Lomborg. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, and it's great to be here, so uh, thank you very much. I'm going to give you a very short version of how do we think about where should we spend money and do the most good. Uh, so I'm hoping that this... Um, nope. Um, <laughs> just hang on one second, because this is clearly not up and running. Do we have the... Um, yep. Good. Yep. All right. So I'm a Mac guy. Sorry. Um, so I'd, I'd like to talk to you about how do we stop wasting trillions? How do we start thinking about where can we spend resources and do the most good? This is what I do for a living every day. Uh, you may have heard about a lot of the stuff that I talk about, uh, also in the Australian, about uh, climate. But in some sense, it's just a little tail end of the whole conversation about what are smart things to do. When we look across a wide range of areas and look at what's smart, we also find some things that are not smart. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the climate impacts, not all of them, a lot of the climate policies that we look at are not very smart. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when you talk to most Western countries, they don't really want to hear about all the things that are really smart. They just want to hear about the dumb things. So that's why uh, a lot of people mostly think of what I say and what the Copenhagen Consensus says as if it was about climate. But it really is much, much more. So let me just you know, talk a little bit about the world. So there are lots of challenges. And the amazing thing is there's also a lot of really good solutions. But what is it that gets most of our attention? Well, if you look at it, it's very obvious that most things that get our attention are the things that have the cutest animals, or the most crying babies, or the groups with the best PR. And surely, that's not how we should be prioritizing. What we try to say is, we should prioritize by knowing what works and what doesn't. For every dollar spent, where do you do the most good? That's where you use menus with prices. This is sort of a standard menu, right? Oh, cool, I can uh, make my own pizza and it costs $9.99. I know what I'm getting, I know how much I have to pay. Imagine if this was your menu. Imagine if there are no prices. Uh, unless you're really you know, uh, wealthy or on a good expense account, you won't know whether the real price of that pizza is 99 cents or if it's uh, $1,000. Also, you won't know whether you're actually getting the world's smallest pizza or a really, really large pizza that'll serve pretty much your whole company and then some. Right? The whole idea here is to say you need to know how much you're going to pay and how much good is it going to do? That's what my organization, the Copenhagen Consensus, has been doing. We've been making menus for the world, really, for 16 years to ask, where does the next dollar do the most good? We don't look back in time and say, did people screw up in the, back? In, in the past? We look at, where can you spend the next dollar and do the most good? Uh, we work with more than 300 of the world's top economists, with seven Nobel laureates in economics, and we really done this across a wide range of areas. We've done this in Haiti, in Bangladesh, in India. We're right now working with Ghana. 
Uh, we've tried to help the UN uh, set targets, and I'm going to talk a little bit both about Haiti and uh, the UN. We've also tried to look at climate, health, and HIV, and I'm sure uh, some of the questions later on are probably going to be about climate. But let me just ask you, so we basically tried to, uh, to help uh, you know, governments, so DFAT here in Australia, uh, and philanthropists to think about where should you spend money. Uh, I gave a presentation to uh, the, uh, the giving pledgers, so you know, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and all the others. Uh, they meet up once, the, the guys who promised to give away at least half of their wealth and they're billionaires. Um, and I, I gave them, uh, I, I asked them this question that I'm going to ask you now. I gave them a couple of, of uh, opportunities and then I said, where would you spend a million dollars first to do the most good? And I'm going to ask you exactly the same question. You won't have enough information, but it'll, it'll be a good sort of sense of why you need to know about how you think about priorities. So I'm going to give you three different proposals that we did for Haiti. Uh, we were asked by the Canadian government to look at where can you spend money in Haiti and do the most good. They want it to know because they have spent, and they've been very open about this, we've spent a billion dollars, they say, since the earthquake in 2010, and we can't tell the difference. We can't tell that it's actually had an impact in Haiti. We would really like there to be an impact, and that's why we want to find out what are smart things to do. So I'm going to give you three possibilities, and afterwards I'm going to ask you, where would you spend a million dollars to save the most lives? So the first one would be, let's build urban sanitation. Uh, so this is Landa. She's nine years old. She's walking through the mud in Cite de Soleil in uh, uh, Port-au-Prince. Uh, clearly, this is not what a nine-year-old girl should be living in. Clearly, the lack of urban sanitation is a huge problem. About 3,000 people die, we estimate, across Haiti. And if we built urban sanitation, we could probably not save everyone, but we could certainly save some of these people. So the first option is, should you be investing more in urban sanitation? Another opportunity would be to focus on the immense amount of accidents that happen. Most, most developing countries are really, really dangerous. About one in 10 people who die, die from violent deaths. So accidents, uh, stabbings, uh, falls, uh, injuries that you, uh, uh, that you get burnt in, and all kinds of other things. Maybe the right way would be to try and train first responders. If you train first responders, at least those people who are likely to die otherwise will have a better chance to get to a hospital and hence survive. Maybe that's where you should be spending your resources. The third thing, uh, as you may have heard uh, right after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010, we got cholera. Uh, ironically, the UN brought in cholera with uh, some of the uh, peacekeeping forces. And this is an entirely preventable disease. So we've had almost a million people being suffering from, uh, from uh, 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 cholera, and about 10,000 people died from cholera. It's entirely preventable. We know how to do it. It's just simply a vaccine. So maybe we should be spending that million dollars on vaccines. It's not going to be enough to cover all of Haiti, but it would certainly help a lot. So those are the three things that I want you to think about. Where would you spend your resources? So you can spend it on build urban sanitation or train first responders or uh, 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 vaccinate against cholera. Can I just, and I know you don't have enough and, and information and if you were actually gonna spend a million dollars, you'd probably look a little bit more into it. There's no questions now because I need to run through this, but I'll get back to it. If you do this, where would you spend your million dollars? So. Just show a hand, who would uh, spend it on build urban sanitation? 
That's a very large part of the room. Uh, who would spend it on trained first responders? And, well, that's a very small part. I think it's zero, right? Maybe a little one. Uh, and then vaccinate against cholera. All right. You guys are just as smart as the billionaires. Uh, they vote it pretty much this way. It's like 70, 30, or 80, 20, and then nothing to the middle. Let me just show you what the results show. Of course, I picked these also to startle you a little bit, right? If you build urban sanitation, you will do good. Your million dollars will save seven people from dying every year. That's good. That's great. That's seven people who would otherwise not have died. Sorry, who otherwise would have died. Uh, but had you focused on uh, cholera, you would have saved 50 people from dying every year. And if you built, spent your billion, million dollars on trained first responders, you would have saved 550 people. The whole point here is to say, we are very likely to guide ourselves from things we already think we know, from the cute pictures. We want to save Lando, right? But the idea here is to say, if we actually want to do good, we need to ask, how much good will this do? And there's a lot of reasons why, and we can talk about that afterwards. But the whole idea is to get data back into this conversation. So that's what I really want to show you. The UN uh, did uh, uh, both amazing and frustrating, as is often the case with the UN, uh, a, a, a priority setting process to take over from the Millennium Development Goals, which they did back in 2000. They wanted to do it again in 2015. They set what eventually ended up being known as the Sustainable Development Goals. The Sustainable Development Goals have been signed up by all countries around the world, so Australia is also signed up to it. And it basically says all good things for everyone. Uh, I went around and met with a lot of the UN ambassadors who were setting up these targets. Uh, and I you know, pleaded with them, look, we're going to do a cost-benefit analysis of all these targets. You should be focusing on the smartest targets. And they were all like, yes, that's really, really smart. But of course, it turned out that this was not actually what the UN ambassadors were playing. They were not playing the game of how do we make the best targets for the world. They were playing the targets of the game of saying, I'm the Norwegian ambassador. I want to get, I can make fun of the Norwegians. Uh, I want to get four, my government's four targets into the uh, final document. And likewise with Brazilian ambassador, he wanted to get Brazil's five targets in there. And on and on. That's why we ended up with not a few smart targets, but actually 169 targets for the world. We basically promised everything to everyone everywhere all the time. Not surprisingly, the world can't afford to do all of these targets. So fundamentally, we've just promised something that we know is going to end up making everyone disappointed by 2030. We tried to look at where should you be spending resources. We worked with a lot of economists. These are all the, uh, the different papers. Uh, they're all available on our, on our website. Uh, we uh, published a big Cambridge University Press book across all of these areas. This is all cost-benefit analyses. But actually, in front of you, you have uh, the folder, which is just a one page that tells you what uh, the, the work of 50 economists, two years of their lives, several Nobel laureates, they're all really annoyed that all of their work can be distilled into one, one sheet. Uh, but this is how you get people's attention, right? The idea here is to say, out on the, sorry, on the left-hand side are all the different targets. And for each one of these targets, there is a cost-benefit analysis. And what the bar out to the right shows, am I doing this right? Yes, yeah, sorry, I'm really bad with left and right. Uh, out to the right, the bars simply show you how good 
is each one of these interventions. If it's a long bar, it's good. If it's a short bar, not so good. It basically shows you how many dollars of social good do you do for every dollar spent. And that's what I want to show you a little bit about. So I'm just going to show you up here. This is the same thing as what you just saw. But basically, this is all the research. Obviously, I can't go through all of it. But I want to show you a few of these, why it is that the world ought to be focusing on some things and not other things. So let me just you know, start off. If you look down at the bottom, uh, governance and, and, and uh, institutions, uh, a lot of people point out, look, one of the most important things is to get governance right, is to make sure you don't have corruption. The problem and the reason why it ends up in the bottom is we don't know how to translate dollars into good institutions. We know they're important, but we don't know how to do it. And so if there's things you don't know how to do and there are things you do know how to do, and I'm sure, going to show you a lot of those, you should do the things you do know how to do first. There's lots of other things, for instance, poverty. Poverty is a huge problem in the world. But attacking it directly, basically trying to give people money, turns out to not be a very effective way. On the other hand, there's a lot of indirect ways, like getting better education or getting better nutrition, I'll show you that in a bit, that works a lot better. Uh, if you look at water and sanitation, surprisingly not very good. This is one of the things, this is one of the reasons why Landa uh, from Haiti was not a very good intervention, because toilets cost a lot to build. And people often don't use them unless you spend a lot of money to keep them nice. Uh, and even then, they'll lie about it. We, we put up uh, counters in, in India, uh, and uh, then we asked everyone, so how, how do you use the toilet? And everybody said yes. And we could see only about half was not lying uh, when, when, we, when we looked at the counters. The point is, it's really costly to do something about sanitation. So if you look at this one estimate, I'm just going to give you the very brief overview, right? Uh, lack of sanitation kills a lot of people around the world, a quarter of a million people. But if you do simple sanitation, that is basically a, a, a hole in the ground. Has everyone finished? <laughs> it, basically a hole in the ground, right? It doesn't help you all that much. And it costs quite a bit. We estimate it'll cost $31 billion every year. The main benefit will actually mostly be that you spend less time, uh, 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 you waste less time. You'll also get some mortality and disease benefits. Overall, we estimate the total impact of that is about $91 billion. So you do do good, but only some good. We estimate the benefit-cost ratio, and I'm going to say that a lot, is three, right? So for every dollar you spend, you do $3 worth of good. That's nice. That's why those bars are fairly small. And that's why I would argue we should try to go for something that's much, much better. Let me just show you climate. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'm sure we can have some Q&A afterwards. But if you look at climate, it, 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 it ends, ends up fairly far down. And it, for the simple reason that it's really hard to spend money here and do a lot of good. If you look at the two-degree target, which is what everyone says that they've signed up to, we actually have analysis of the two-degree target. So uh, William Nordhaus, uh, one of the leading climate economists in the world, he's the only person to win the Nobel Prize in economics from climate. And his model shows, sure, if you do the two-degree target, there will be a significant benefit because you'll have less global warming, hence less problems from global warming. The total benefit across the next centuries is probably about $100 trillion. That's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of good you do. The problem is getting 
to the two degree target will cost you about $350 trillion. It's a bad deal, I don't need to say, but let's just say it anyway, right? It's a bad deal to spend $350 trillion to do $100 trillion of good. Every dollar you spend will do 29 cents of good. When there's so many other things you can do, let's perhaps do those instead. And one of the things I've kept pointing out, uh, also in the Australian and many other places, is it turns out if we focus on green energy R&D instead, because it's so much cheaper, and because the idea here is if you can innovate green energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone will switch, not just rich, well-meaning Australians, but also the Chinese and the Indians and everybody else. It costs less and it has much greater benefits. We estimate over the century this would cost about uh, uh, 1.6 trillion, but the benefits would be in the order of $18 trillion of avoided climate damage. So the idea here is if you spend it on investment in green energy R&D, every dollar will do $11 of good. So you can just simply see through your, your sheet how well does this work. And you can simply shop and say, which ones do I want to do? I'm just going to rush through uh, because I'm, I'm very well aware that we have lots of other things we want to talk about. So energy, there are lots of smart things you can do. For instance, get rid of fossil fuel subsidies, especially in places like Venezuela, where I don't know yet anymore, but it used to be that uh, gasoline, for instance, was subsidized 92%. Uh, so yeah, you could basically ride around, if you were lucky enough to be rich enough to actually have a car, uh, then you could ride around, but obviously that's not a very effective way to deal with these issues. Uh, conflict and violence, I think one of the big overlooked problems in the world is that there's an enormous amount of violence against especially women and children. Uh, so UN numbers seems to indicate that every year, 308 million women are attacked in a way, in domestic violence, attacked in a way that would mean that the person who did it would go to jail in the US. 308 million women, we estimate the total cost of that is $4.4 trillion or about 5% of global GDP. It's a huge issue. But it's also true for children. We estimate that uh, every month, 290 million kids are hit so badly, again, that you would go to jail for this in the US. Uh, it, it actually turns out in some of these surveys, a horrible reading. Uh, it turns out that a fourth of all these beatings of children only stop when the implement with which they're beaten breaks. Yeah, it's just phenomenal, right? And this, we estimate, costs $3.6 trillion every year. So again, there are lots of good things to be done, things that don't make the headlines but just happen to be incredibly important. Let me just give you a few things on biodiversity, for instance. Uh, there's lots of stupid things to do in biodiversity, but there's also re some really, really good things. Uh, and one of them is, for instance, to stop uh, 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 to half coral reef loss, basically get people to stop uh, dynamite fishing, cyanide fishing. Not only does it help the biodiversity, but it also means you get better uh, 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 fisheries because uh, coral reefs act as hatcheries, and you also get more tourism. Uh, for every dollar spent, you'll probably uh, enjoy about $24 worth of good. Education, a big issue, and I'm sure we can come back to it. It turns out that it's really hard to do money into good education. Uh, for a variety of reasons, for instance, in India, uh, they have really, really bad teachers. What they've done is basically they've hired uh, 
They've hired almost 7 million teachers. They've given really good wages. They're almost impossible to fire, so they rarely show up. Uh, so the solution to India right now is that you actually hire a second set of teachers to come and do what the first set should be doing. And it turns out to be a pretty good deal. Uh, the, the, the danger is that eventually these guys will also get permanent uh, and then they'll stop showing up and then you need to hire a third set of teachers. But you see the problem, right? And so it turns out that it's actually quite hard to get good solutions for education directly. But I'm going to show you one of the very, very good uh, uh, indirect ways, which is nutrition. So it turns out that nutrition is one of the best investments in the world. Why is that? It turns out that if you invest in nutrition for really small kids, zero to two-year-olds, it develops their brain better so that when they go to school, even if it's a crappy school, and it likely will be, they will learn much more. So when they come out, they'll become much more productive. And so in their adult lives, they will make much more uh, resources. This has actually turned out to be true. This used to, for a long time, uh, be a, a conjecture. It generated several Nobel Prizes, but it was a conjecture. Turns out that we actually have the world's longest running study from Guatemala. Uh, back in the late 1960s, American researchers went to Guatemala and picked out two small villages, rural villages in Guatemala, and gave the kids good food. Now, you can hear where this is heading, right? Because they picked two other rural villages right nearby, and they basically get the kids their sugar water. Uh, but you'd never get this past any sort of uh, uh, ethics committee today. But our people, went back and refound those kids. They're now in their late 30s, early 40s in Guatemala. And the difference between the kids who are well-fed and not well-fed is amazing. So for the kids who are well-fed, uh, they're much likely to have happier marriages, uh, better jobs. If they're women, they have fewer miscarriages. But crucially, it turned out that they have, if they avoided being stunted, which is one of the best indicators of not having been fed well, they had 60% higher wages. They're just simply much, much better, more productive. So get more food to small kids. It turns out the average cost across the world would be about $100 over two years. The benefit would be just measured in how much more productive would you become uh, on, in, in percentage-wise is almost $4,400, or for every dollar spent, you'll do $45 worth of good. One of the best investments in the world. Why is it we're not focusing more on this? This is the kind of way that we would make everyone become much more productive in the long run. I'm just going to show you a few more things, and then I'll shut up. Uh, on tuberculosis, uh, it strikes me it's amazing that we know almost nothing about tuberculosis. Remember, tuberculosis over the last 200 years killed a billion people. It's probably the biggest disease killer, certainly over the last centuries. Uh, a lot of the famous people you remember uh, from 100 years ago died from consumption or tuberculosis, right? But we fixed it, and so we don't really care about it anymore. Yet it's a huge problem in most places around the world. So tuberculosis is actually the most killing infectious disease, not HIV and malaria, partly because we fixed much of both HIV and malaria, but we've given no attention to tuberculosis. It turns out it's an incredibly good investment and very, very easy. So very roughly, uh, we could save almost everyone. So we could save about 1.5 million people dying from tuberculosis every year for about $8 billion. This, these are all US dollars, I should say. $8.1 billion annually. The benefit would be 
and this is crucial because most of these tuberculosis kills people in their prime. It kills moms and dads who've already taken their education. They're now moms and dads. They're productive. Then they die, leave their kids. If we did something about that, it would at least generate 20 more life years uh, on average. The median benefit would be about $38,000. The cost per tuberculosis case is just $900. So we would actually get a benefit cost ratio of 43. Every time you spend a dollar in TB, you do $43 worth of good for the world. Let me just show you the two top things, and then I'll end. Uh, the on gender, if you look at universal access to contraception, is an amazing achievement. Why is that family planning? Basically because it generates an enormous amount of benefits, both for moms and kids, but also for the global economy. So about 215 million women don't have access to uh, family planning. If we manage to get that, the cost would be about $3.6 billion a year. But the benefit would both be that a lot of moms wouldn't die in childbirth. So we estimate about 150,000 moms wouldn't die in childbirth. But because you get access to family planning, you also space your kids better. That means you don't get them when it's really inconvenient, right before the harvest, for instance. It means that you can invest more in them. It means that there's much less likelihood that they'll actually die. That's why we estimate almost 640,000 kids won't die. But so that alone, it, of course, it also means that about 600,000 uh, children won't lose their moms. Uh, the total net benefit of that is about $145 billion a year. But that's only uh, about a third of the total benefit because if you get better uh, family planning, you also get fewer kids because you space them better and then eventually run out of time. So you, you get fewer kids. That means they have more capital, they get more investment both from parents, but also get more investment in the sense that there's more capital left over for them. That means they become more productive. We know that uh, that's you know, sort of essentially what happened uh, on a juiced up version in China. The demographic dividend, that you simply get slightly higher growth. We estimate that benefit would be worth another almost $300 billion a year. So for uh, $3.6 billion, we could make the world almost $450 billion better off. Or every dollar spent would do $120 worth of good. The last and perhaps most important point is just simply free trade. We seem to have forgotten that. That just happens to be incredibly effective. So if we actually did free trade, do you, do you guys remember the Doha round? Politicians gave up on that. We talk incessantly about Kyoto and Paris, but nobody seems to be talking about how the Doha round could make an amazing achievement. So this is not even free trade, it's freer trade. If we manage to do the Doha round, we estimate the total cost would be about $250 billion. That mainly be uh, uh, bribing uh, rich Western farmers, right? Uh, because that's basically what was holding back the, the Doha round. But if you run the World Bank's uh, uh, dynamic models and how much better off would the world economy be, in total, the benefit would be in the order of $500 trillion. We estimate the average person would be, in the developing world, about $1,000 richer by 2030. This would be the amazing gift that we could give people. You know, we promised in the world with the SDGs that we're going to do a lot of good for 2030. 
but we don't have the money for it and we're going to end up disappointing most people. Why is it we don't actually f focus on making sure that the most effective thing, which is free of trade, would actually help them become $1,000 richer per person per year in 2030? It would lift 160 million people out of poverty. And for every dollar we spent, we'd do $2,000 worth of good. The important point, and this is the last slide, the important point is if we spend, and we're likely to spend just simply through DFAT and other uh, similar institutions, USAID in the US and everywhere else, we're going to spend about $2.5 trillion just in, sorry, just in public development aid over the next 15 years. This money will do good. It will not do an amazing amount of good, but it will do good. We estimate it will probably in total do about $17.5 trillion of good. But if we spent this in the best possible way, in those things that I've just shown you, the things we know work best, we could do so much more good. We could do more than four times more good. Imagine that for Australia. That means that the money you spend on DFAT, you wouldn't have to give more. You would simply have to spend it smarter. We could end up doing $80 trillion of good globally instead of just a measly $17.5 trillion. Every year, the world spends about $200 billion. That's both from public spending and private philanthropy. We could increase that by four times. I think that's just so amazing that we don't have this conversation. And so again, our goal here really is, I, I recognize that you know, uh, putting out this sort of uh, menu, it's very easy to say, why aren't we all listening to this? And of course, the real issue is that there's a lot of vested interests in some of these things. So I'm not going to argue we should be all smart. Imagine if we were just 1% smarter. Imagine if instead of wasting 100%, we just wasted 99%. <laughs> then we'd still do 50 billion more good for the world. So if we can get this message out, and that was really the, uh, the point of these where I asked you to, to choose, right? If we can get the point out of don't look at who has the cutest animal or the most crying babies or the groups with the best PR, but instead look at who actually has the best cost-benefit analysis, we could help make the world $50 billion better off. How cool is that? Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Bjorn. And just a footnote to Bjorn's excellent presentation. Uh, the uh, Doha multilateral round that collapsed, I think it was in the northern summer of 2008 on the eve of the global financial shock in September of that year. Many economists attribute the sluggish economic recovery uh, since the financial crisis to the failure of political leaders to kickstart multilateral free trade. Now it's time for Q&A and our first question comes from Doug Bandow. Doug, uh, is a CIS scholar in residence for 2020 and, and he's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington which is like a sister think tank of CIS and he's a former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan. Doug. Your Honor, I've always loved your work as somebody who tries to convince Washingtonians that opportunity cost matters <laughs> and it's not easy. It strikes me the, the real issue here, let me go to climate change because that obviously is a hot button is that this analysis I find convincing, but obviously climate change activists would argue that your numbers for climate change presumably are way off. The question is how can we help intelligent activists, intelligent people get through this superheated political debate and get good information and actually understand what the threats are of climate change and what the analysis is 
Because obviously we have the deniers, we have those who believe doom is upon us. How can an average person try to figure this out, who to listen to, how to make a decision? So I, I think there's a lot of uh, good part questions in that, and let me just try and answer a few of them. So fundamentally, I think there's a couple of things that we need to get through. Uh, so when I presented this to the uh, World Resources Institute, uh, they were like, <gasps> how dare you make it red? How dare you make it less than one? And they were sort of like, look, doing you know, two degree target is at least 1.3 or something. You know, so instead of being a, a complete waste of money, it's only just eh, not very good. So I think a lot of people in the, the very green part of the conversation still knows it's not a very good investment. And, and I think that's where we get the point of saying, why is it you insist on helping people in 100 years really ineffectively with huge sums of money instead of helping them right now? If you ask them, what do you care about? When you ask people in the developing world, they don't answer, yes, I worry a lot about two or three degrees temperature rise in 100 years. They worry about the fact that their kid might die tonight from malaria. And I think that is one of the you know, sort of emotional ways. This is nothing to do with the cost-benefit analysis, but the emotional way of saying, how dare you, sorry, this sounds like I'm impersonating someone else, but you know, to actually focus on helping them inefficiently in 80 or 100 years rather than helping them tonight. So that's one part of it. The second part is, and this is of course their backup argument, is, well, if you don't do this, nothing else matters. You know, the whole earth is going to be ruined. And I, I, I think that is, that is probably the biggest part of this conversation, that you just simply have to roll it back and say, that's just not true. It's not what the UN Climate Panel tells us. It's not what all of the analysis show us. And it's not what the data show us either. If you look at how many people died from climate-related uh, disasters in, in the world in the 100 years ago, so in the 1920s, the answer is about half a million people died every year. Today, that number is down to about 18,000 people per year. We've literally seen a decline of 96% death. And remember, at the same time, we've become four times more. So we've actually seen a per-person risk decline by 99%. Why is that? It's mostly not anything to do with climate, but everything to do with the fact that if you're rich, you don't die from climate-related diseases. If you're poor, sorry, not diseases, but problems, if you're poor, you do. And so, again, what is the best way to help most of the world? It's to make sure that they're not poor. It's right. Do you guys remember uh, there's a hurricane that hit uh, Tacloban in the Philippines back in 2013? It, it happened right when there was a UN climate summit, and everybody was saying, oh, we should help those people by cutting a ton of carbon dioxide. I'm not going to go in my car tomorrow and help them. And you're like, really? <laughs> a, a, a similar hurricane hit 100 years before, killed 40 times more people. Why? Because they were incredibly poor. Now they're only very poor. But of course, the point should be that we would want to take them out of their corrugated roofs and into good homes. So the idea here is, again, to point out to people, how do you help people to do much more good? And the same thing, you know, if you look at total global uh, 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 catastrophe cost, uh, if you, if we only have good data from 1990, uh, but uh, the linear trend is it's gone from costing 0.26% of GDP to now 0.18%. So it's not only gone down, but also it's 0. Point something. It's not the major part of the reason why the world has problems. 
The reason why you think so is because you watch too much CNN. <laughs> and all other TV channels that not anything to do with CNN. Okay, next question. Yes. Elizabeth. Hi. I'm interested to know how you're measuring social goods, maybe just for some examples, so, um, and how you're measuring spending. And I, the reason, I guess, is um, we've spent a bit of time looking at how there's a ton of money spent in Australia on Aboriginal um, poverty and, and closing the gap and other things. And when you look into it, a lot of that actually doesn't get spent particularly on that. It'll get spent on some public servant somewhere who then writes report and does this. So you could spend a billion dollars on contraception and never get a Not box get of birth control out the door, out, right? Yeah. So how, I guess it's probably in your detail, and I know it's a big question, so maybe just some examples of how you're measuring, how you're measuring the, the good and, and how, you, how you would be um, putting some constraints around the spending so it's yes. spent yeah. purposefully. This, this is a great question, and it's a little bit geeky question, so uh, I love it, but, but I, I'm going to keep it shorter. Uh, so, how do you measure what's the value, you know, so, you know, for instance, how do you measure the value of saving a human life? There's actually a lot of investigation on, on how you do that, uh, and a lot of us make implicit valuations of how much we value our own lives by, for instance, deciding to, you know, drive a little too fast or cross the road to buy a sneakers, because all of these things have non-zero risk of us dying. Right, so we put in some effort to avoid it. For instance, we don't take really dangerous jobs, or if we do, we demand a little extra pay. We can actually uh, find out how much do we value our own lives. Uh, likewise, you can also investigate it by government policy. For instance, how much do you invest in highway safety? Uh, we know that the more safety you put in, the fewer people die, but at some point you don't put in more safety because, yeah, it's just not worth it. And that's essentially where you see how much do governments evaluate uh, the, the lives of their citizens. So that's how we value the life side. The other question is, well, but you could spend all the money and do nothing whatsoever. Uh, what we try to do is to we look at all the different programs that have already been instituted and say, let's assume you do it reasonably well. So reasonably well means you don't just you know, waste it. Uh, you, you obviously, you can spend a billion dollars and just do no good. That's very easy to do. Uh, I'm, well, actually, that would probably be a little hard to do with a billion dollars, but, but yeah, people manage it all the time around the world. Uh, but, but, the, but the idea here is to say you do reasonably well, but it's not absurdly well. So we assume that people are normally incompetent, that they're normally corrupt, that they normally fail, as they have done in many other projects. So we, we believe that the numbers I just showed you are reasonable estimates of what you could actually get out of a dollar or a million or a billion dollars. Uh, but of course, you have to be careful. You can't just go out and buy it from the first person you meet and then expect to get that, that full effect. But it's a reasonable estimate of what DFAT could do if they did it reasonably well, but still with lots of corruption and all that other stuff that comes with it. Next question. Uh, Nicholas Moore, our chairman. Thanks, Bjorn, for the uh, presentation. I think it's a, a brilliant way of looking at the, uh, at the world and, and, the, and the problems. Uh, two questions I have, though, coming out of it, uh, problems of, of detail. Uh, but the spend on R&D, expecting an outcome. Now, as we know, when we look at the world, uh, you can spend all the money in the world on R&D, and the outcome, of course, is entirely uncertain. And what we've learned in terms of the Industrial Revolution on, the big improvements were just little incremental steps that people took along the way to make a final product. 
So it's, it's quite bold to say you can spend $100 billion on R&D and have this payoff because it could be entirely wasted. Most R&D, of course, is. is. So I guess that's, that's one question. And, and in defence of uh, changing usage, that would result in, you know, say, for example, electric cars or solar cells and all the rest. And the mass production of that we know historically has led with you know, huge economic benefits. So I'll just question whether R&D is really the solution versus mass production and people actually getting out there and competing competitively in a, in a neutral environment. Uh, second question is on contraception. And, and on that point, looking back at, again at, at the past in the 60s in terms of the population bomb and the steps taken in India and China in particular, where you had forced sterilisation and abortion and all that dreadful stuff. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit scary when you talk about contraception given that history where the government, again, coming back to your previous points, the government sees something like this and think, oh, this is a good thing. Let's, let's put money into this area with the personal implications being lost in terms of trying to deal with millions of people. Yeah. Right, so great question. So the first one, obviously, we don't know what the future is going to look like. So yes, this is an absolutely uncertain argument. What we do say is we look at how much have, uh, have, uh, have we seen of benefits from other investments in R&D, and then our, our research has tried to translate that into how much of a change in the, uh, in the probability that we will be able to get, uh, uh, you know, for instance, renewables. So typically you have uh, like a, a, a low or zero carbon backup technology that will eventually kick in. So Nordhaus uh, says in 2000, uh, sorry, in 2150, we will have competitive uh, 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 CO2 neutral technologies even if we don't do anything. So the question is how much can you move that up? If you look at what we've spent on other things, and we know, for instance, on, in agricultural research and development, we know uh, fairly well what research and development can drive. Does that mean it has any relation to, uh, to R&D and green energy? We don't know. We, we looked across a wide range of areas where governments have spent money and estimated that it will probably be the same kind of benefit back per dollar in those, as it has been in those areas in the past. But we're asking a question about what the future will look like. So no, we don't know. I think it's a reasonable ed educated guess, but you, I would never buy, uh, you know, believe that it's exactly 11. That's no way. Uh, on, on, your, on your secondary part of the first question, namely, isn't it much better to just mass produce? Absolutely, we know mass production works and it can drive down the price. But the point is, then you should make sure you only mass produce one, you know, say it can uh, reduce the price by half, then you should only mass produce when solar price panels are twice as expensive as they would otherwise be. But unfortunately, I think we started sort of mass producing when they were, I don't know, eight times as expensive. Wow, now it's only four times or tw twice. And, and there's a lot more gradient in that question than I have time to get into. But the whole, the whole point is you need the innovation. And then, of course, you should use, utilize the, uh, the, uh, the, the massive benefits you can get from, uh, from increased production later on. The, this, the second part of your question on, on uh, family planning, absolutely, we're not advocating uh, a sterilization or forced or anything. These are 215 million women who say, when you ask them, we would like more access to uh, contraception. So it's only providing them that access. Now, we've actually included, and that goes back to your question, we've included that we know a lot of these women will then try to get the contraception and their husband will say no. So we've included that a lot of this is going to be ineffective. 
but it's all their own choice. So it's only choice to say, I would actually like to be able to space my next kid so that I can get past the, uh, the next harvest and that it'll fit better into our, our, our timing. And that will actually help. So, so it's only that part that we've looked at as the benefit. Next question, uh, Peter Tulip from the Reserve Bank. Uh, just there, Peter, thanks. Um, to what extent are these alternatives? So I can s clearly see that if you're talking about a foreign aid budget, you've got a limited amount you can spend and you have to choose. But if you're talking, say, domestic policy, shouldn't you just do everything with a benefit cost ratio above one? Or maybe you've got a higher threshold too if you're cautious? Yes. So, so if this was a question of, of what should Australia be doing with its own budget, in principle we should be doing everything that's above one. Uh, and, and that if you, if you don't, if, if, you, uh, if you get too many things above one, it's an indicator that you have uh, too low a discount rate. Uh, so absolutely. But, uh, but, but, the, but the, the idea in what we're trying to do is basically spending money to do good in the world. Because most money that's spent in Australia is spent to do good for Australia. And likewise in the US and everywhere else. Uh, they're spent on national priorities. But it's important to emphasize when we talk about climate, which is one of the other things, uh, but also peacekeeping forces we also have in there, uh, you know, some uh, uh, global benefits like uh, 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 oceans and so on. These are typically things we mostly do for other people. We, we don't do them because cutting a ton of carbon dioxide makes a lot of good for Australia. It makes a little bit of good for Australia, and most of the good will go to everyone else. So in that sense, it's almost the same kind of thing, and that's why we have that conversation. So this is only for what should we be spending money on to do good for the rest of the world. Yes. Final question, Giles Edward. Uh, Bjorn, I'm kind of dismayed when I look at the... You uh, what, sorry? I'm somewhat dismayed. When I see oh, okay. that uh, corruption and bribery don't even yes. get a mention except as uncertain, I would have thought that particularly in the poorer countries, Africa, South America, Asia, a lot of what you're saying about delivery of services, health, blah, 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 would be terribly degraded because of the corrupt systems. Yes. How do you tackle corruption when it's so endemic in so many societies that you, you just need a clean sweep or a... Yeah. Machine gun or something it's, like it's, Well, <laughs> all right. I don't think that's the right answer, no, no, but no. let's... let's that let's, was a joke for the no, record, no, no, no. for Please. the record. So any, anyway, so it's a very good question. So we worked with uh, Susan Rose Ackerman from, uh, from Yale University, who is actually the originator of, I don't know if you've heard, the, the, the estimate that the world, uh, that corruption costs the world a trillion dollars a year. Um, uh, so she, she based on a lot of, inf you know, but obviously it's a, it's a very, very, talking about rough estimates, right? But uh, so, and, and uh, Mary Hildebrand out of Harvard University, uh, who've also looked a lot on what can you do about corruption in the world. And, and, and the, simple, the simple answer is, we don't know. So, you know, it's a huge problem, but we don't know how to fix it. And so our argument is, all right, if it's a huge problem, but we don't know how to fix it, tuberculosis is a huge problem. We do know how to fix, let's do tuberculosis first. However, it turns out that when we then went to Bangladesh, we actually found that there, there are specific things that you can do in specific countries. It's not typically about money. So it's not about DFAT giving money to some country to get rid of corruption. In, in fact, it's probably going to be the other way around, right? Uh, but, uh, but the reality is, in, so in Bangladesh, we actually found, uh, and this is probably true in many countries, uh, so we found that uh, uh, Bangladesh spends a little more than half of its budget on procurement. And procurement, obviously, is incredibly corrupt. 
Uh, so they have this British system that you, uh, that you have to hand in a sealed envelope with a bid on the public procurement project in, at a specific government office. But the problem is the ruling elite in this area has already decided that you, know, you are going to get the bid. Uh, and so what they do is they put up goons outside the office. So you physically can't get in with your, with your envelope. Now, what we found was if you implement e-procurement, so basically put it on essentially eBay, you, you bid online, and you can bid from all across the country. Not only do you get better and higher quality, but you get on average 12% lower cost. We did that because we could do it over two years for just a little bit of the budget, uh, and you could go back and say, what did you expect it would cost? And we could actually see what it ended up costing. So we could see that it was these 12%. Uh, and what happens then is, if you do this for, you can get it up to about 95% of, of, of the budget, you make $700 million for free every year. Not surprisingly, when we showed this to the finance minister of Bangladesh, this is one of the first things they said, yeah, we're going to do that. And they've now done it mostly, and most of it is good. So again, what has happened here is 12% cheaper doesn't mean that there's no corruption. There's still lots of ways you can do that, but it's 12% less corruption. And that's exactly the kind of solutions that you need. So there are solutions. Unfortunately, there are no good global solutions, and there are no good solutions, as far as we can see, where you spend money to get that. So if you're going to spend a million dollars, that's not where you should spend it. Well, Bjorn has uh, uh, spoken before at the Center for Independent Studies at our concilium. I think it was in 2012 when we had it at uh, Coulomb until um, Clive Palmer turned it into a dinosaur park. Well, we haven't been back. But that, <laughs> that was in 2012. And I think Bjorn has once again shown why he is widely regarded as one of the world's leading authorities on development and the environment. Please join me in thanking Bjorn Lomborg. <laughs> that worked, mate.